from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 10th. Today, the coronavirus's disproportionate effect on Black people, why covering your face can be fraught, and Black hair during a pandemic. What we're seeing in states that collect information by race is that Black people are disproportionately being infected by the virus, and they're also dying at rates that are considerably higher than whites. No one knows why for sure, but people are taking a few really good educated guesses. What we know is that within Black communities and African Americans, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, they do have underlying conditions that are exacerbated by the deadly potential of COVID-19. We're talking about things like diabetes, asthma, COPD, respiratory infections. And these underlying conditions are things that make people really susceptible to death when it comes to COVID. And it's true, Black people do have these underlying conditions at a rate that's higher than white Americans. But that's not the full story. My name's Robert Samuels, and I'm a national reporter for The Washington Post. And how thorough are the numbers that we're seeing on this? Like, how much are cities and states documenting this disparity and paying attention to it? Well, it depends. You're seeing some counties and some states really looking at these numbers. They were able to note that the infection and death rates for Blacks were higher, places like Milwaukee, Detroit, New Orleans, there are cities and jurisdictions that have been looking at this. Other places aren't there yet, and uh, they are not reporting these infections by race. So you look specifically at Milwaukee and, and what's going on there. Why did you want to pay closer attention to Milwaukee? And what have you seen so far in terms of data on Black people who are who are contracting coronavirus and who are dying from it? Well, we know a few things about Milwaukee. One, it's one of the most segregated places in the United States, which means Blacks live very differently from whites who live in that particular city. The other thing that I was really stunned by were the numbers. Not only were Black people in Milwaukee County accounting for half of the coronavirus infections, that's the county data, but The medical examiner was reporting that about 70%, a little more than 70% of people who are dying in Milwaukee County of coronavirus were Black. And this is a county that's only 28% Black. And then when you look at Wisconsin, despite African Americans being 6% of the state population, more than half of the people who are dying in that state come from one particular county and they're all African-American. Wow, that is an incredible disparity that that half the people who are dying of coronavirus in the state are coming from 6% of the population. So, so, So when you talk to people there, what do they say about the particular circumstances that they're seeing that is leading to so many Black people who are being affected? 
what they're seeing in their lives when I spoke with folks like Melody McCurtis, who's a community organizer there, they see the patterns of segregation that force African-Americans to be exposed at rates that might be higher. There's only one hospital on the north side in uh, Melody McCurtis's neighborhood. There's only one major supermarket. The smaller corner stores have closed down. The food pantries are reducing their hours. Metcalf Park residents are in poverty. I mean, the medium income is $24,000 a year. Um, and then and most of them are waiting on um, some form of payment from job or government assistance. Um, and they they weren't equipped to stock up for this, right? And then when they actually did have some type of funds to go and purchase items, everything in the neighborhood was already sold out. And so to get food, people have to board buses. They have to go outside their community. They can't stay at home. You know, the stay-at-home order would in effect, but it was folks that still needed food and essentials. How are they going to actually be able to stay in the home, right? And also they have to find ways to keep food on the table. That is, they have to work. Most of the people in these communities, they don't have work from home jobs. They do things like drive buses, work on assembly lines. They take care of the elderly and they need to be in places where they're exposed to lots of people. A lot of families there live multi-generationally. That is, there are young people who are going out and working and coming back to homes with elderly people who might have these underlying conditions that are really exacerbated when COVID-19 enters their system. In Milwaukee, in particular, it's very common for families to do what's called doubling up or tripling up, which means you have two or three families, sometimes two or three unrelated families living in the same space. Most of the housing stock is not even owned by folks that live in Wisconsin. You know, and we're a hyper segregated city um, and Metcalf Park has 86 percent renters. So it's already putting our community in a trajectory of displacement, disenfranchisement, and just outright, you know, structural racism for our officials to say, just go in and stay in, even if you don't have what you need. So what you have are the conditions of segregation and the conditions of poverty to a lesser extent really being exploited by this virus because the people within that community cannot do the things that will allow them to flatten the curve as easily. And so how are city leaders trying to address this issue? In Milwaukee, what Mayor Tom Barrett says is that they feel they're ahead of this issue in some senses because they took the first step of collecting that data. And so they're able to see the infection rates and the infection disparities, and they were able to have more testing within those communities. So in Milwaukee, you're seeing people who live on the north side, uh, which is the predominantly black side, being tested at rates almost twice as high as some of the wider communities. But the issue is they're not sure how to spread the word about coronavirus and how to stop the spread because the typical ways that they'd reach out to Black communities, things like churches and community gatherings, those things aren't happening anymore. So the big question for officials there is what they can do to get people within the neighborhood to take it seriously and to find ways to practice social distancing. 
And and what has been effective so far? Well, nothing. One of the things that they did was say, you know, if we see you outside in large groups, um, you can get a ticket or you can go to jail. And looking at the history of our Milwaukee Police Department and how many people have been murdered by our Milwaukee Police Department, you know, that that dangerous. that was dangerous and it was traumatic. Melody's mother, Danelle Cross, is also a community organizer. The two of them put out a mutual aid survey to the community and found out that the local government's efforts to get information out there, they just weren't that effective. We found out through the mutual aid survey that people in in our community was not really aware of what was going on. They asked, one of the things that they asked for the most in the mutual aid survey was, more information on the on the virus, more information on how to protect themselves. And so we understood that they didn't get enough information, that the traditional ways that people are communicating with people in our community don't work. So to say that they knew that they were supposed to stay in the house was the first mistake. The second mistake was to say that the only way that we can make this happen is by incarcerating people or ticketing people was the second mistake. What we're seeing are people within the community trying to come up with these homemade solutions to figure it out. We saw community activists host live streams of them going to confront business owners who had large groups of people congregating outside of their stores and saying to them, hey, listen, you know, we need to enforce this social distancing thing and we need to do it ourselves because we know the police can criminalize this neighborhood. So let's try to figure it out on our own. And you saw community groups saying, if it's true that these food pantries are closing because they can't get enough volunteers to distribute the food, even though they have the food, let's go out And let's try to distribute it ourselves. And so you have these people who have no real experience in food distributions trying to get into the game so people can stay home. Make sure you're staying in, you're staying safe. We got some information in there. If you need stuff like this every two weeks, make sure you follow that link. Friday, Friday, April 3rd, we went out to a little bit over 750 doors. And we had 10 volunteers to help package and we had volunteer vehicles to come. We took four trucks out, four truckloads. And so we loaded the trucks up with food, bagged the food after we sorted it and packaged it. And we drove out to the community and the volunteers put the food on the porch, knocked on the door and stepped back out of the yard so that they would not have contact. Uh, residents would then come out to the porch, pick up the package, and it was so gratifying that residents came out on their porch and, you know, let the volunteers know that they appreciated that they needed it and that they appreciated um, somebody answering the call to supply the needs of the community. And at one point, when they were packing up all the food and toilet paper and everything else, Melody says that she asked if anyone had a speaker so they could play some music. No one did, but one of the volunteers said that they could all just sing together. Somebody, please, you know, I just might have a problem that you need to pay. We all need somebody. 
You know, when I uh, spoke with Senator Elizabeth Warren, who along with uh, Representative Ayanna Presley and some other lawmakers in the Senate, she said to me that a pandemic like this really shows the inequalities that have long existed in America. And that's true. But I think it's also important to understand that it doesn't just show some of these inequalities. It really exploits them because access to things like food, to things like groceries, the ability to self-quarantine in a home, there are things that cannot happen within certain communities because of those inequalities, because of what you're seeing with problems with affordable housing, with getting businesses to invest in Black communities. And now we're seeing some of the harms, which is scores upon scores of Black lives being lost. Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. So as the CDC issued their guidelines last week, recommending that all Americans begin to wear masks, even if they're homemade out of bandanas, I started thinking about how this guidance will not be affecting all Americans equally. So members of my family who are Black and friends who are Black, we, we talk about this, you know, like suddenly there's this edict that we should all be wearing masks. It hasn't stopped them from wearing it, but it's very much something that's at the top of their mind when they go out and do essential shopping. My name is Tracy Jan, and I cover race and the economy at The Washington Post. This is a really difficult choice for a lot of people that they want to keep themselves safe. They want to keep other people safe and adhere to this protocol about wearing masks and that wearing masks might actually make a difference in your community in terms of transmission rates. But at the same time, they're also facing, you know, not only just like being thrown out of a store, but but that there are actual health risks for them, too, to wearing a mask and, and potentially interacting with police in a way that they could end up arrested or, you know, in some cases killed because they are perceived as a threat. That's absolutely right. And that is the concern. It's really sad because I've spoken to several men who are taking it upon themselves to appear, quote unquote, less threatening. One man mentioned that he chose brightly colored bandanas in the absence of a medical mask, he's choosing to wear his wife and his daughter's pink scarves and lime green bandanas. He left for the first time on Sunday to go grocery shopping, and he was wearing a baby blue bandana that matched his UNC hat. One of the men I spoke with is a pastor named Corey Anderson in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was making what are less and less frequent runs to the grocery store, Got in the car, drove to the store, uh, got ready to get out of my car. I said, let me, put, let me put my mask on. I said, well, you know what? I've got, a, I've got a hoodie on also. Let me put my hoodie up. And then I looked in my rearview mirror and saw <laughs> Trayvon Martin and saw Mike Brown and saw, you know, this long list of, of uh, you know, African-American males. 
He said it was not a good look. And he, again, was trying to appease folks around him by trying to appear less threatening. So he took off his hood. It dawned on me that even though we're in a pandemic, all of these frames still exist in people's minds. And it honestly, it gave me pause. And it just feels so frustrating that this is something that people have to keep in mind or to be thinking about what kind of look they're giving off, even in the middle of a public health crisis. Yeah, I mean, this public health crisis is just exposing all the fault lines that already exist in America. Of all the things that you don't want to have to talk about during a global pandemic, we still have to talk about over-criminalization of people of color. We still have to talk about, you know, how other people are viewing us, particularly as men of color, as we're in public. We've seen the public health disparities. We've seen the disproportionately high infection rates and death rates among African-Americans in a lot of different communities. And not wearing a mask or being concerned about whether you're going to protect your health by wearing a mask or protect your health by not wearing a mask so that you don't have an unfortunate encounter with a police officer is unfortunate and says a lot about the state of our country. And to be clear, this is one of just many ways that racism is affecting how we're seeing these like public health policies and concerns about public health play out in public spaces. I mean, we've talked a lot about racism against Asian Americans, uh, discrimination, racial slurs or attacks on on Asian Americans. But also thinking specifically about masks, I think this is something that's also of concern to women who wear hijabs, that to be wearing a hijab already that is differentiating you from other people and then to add a mask onto that, women are having to be very mindful of how they're appearing and how threatening they could be appearing. That's absolutely right. And in the beginning, um, when this pandemic started, Asian Americans who were wearing masks were thought of as carrying some sort of, you know, foreign virus. So then what is the solution here? Or how can we have public health policies like wearing masks in public that are conceived of and communicated in a way that isn't clearly just for white people. A lot of local authorities, a lot of local law enforcement agencies uh, either are or, or have the opportunity just to reach out and reassure folks that whether it's a, whether it's a, again, wearing a face mask or even a bandana, authorities have the opportunity to reassure everybody including communities of color, including people from low-wealth communities, but have the opportunity to assure everybody that the way that they're going to approach enforcement of these things is with compassion and is with understanding. Local politicians can do a better job reaching out to Black and brown neighborhoods and letting them know that, hey, we are here to support you and not just to police you. Tracy Jan covers race and the economy for The Post. Now, one more thing. So it's Wednesday, April 8th, and I'm supposed to be making my bi-monthly trip to my hometown 
get my hair done by the woman who's been doing it for the last 15 years. That's Jordan Marie Smith. She's a producer with Post Reports. And one thing that's been on her mind during the coronavirus outbreak has been, what is she going to do with her hair? So black hair isn't just something you can throw in a top knot in the morning. It requires a lot more work. Right now, I have a protective hairstyle, which means my real hair has been braided with synthetic hair. But the only thing is these crochet braids are supposed to last me two months. And it's been over two months. Hey, Ladybug. Hey, you look great. So Jordan Marie called up her longtime stylist and they had a conversation about it. My name is Tamika Phillips. I am 40 years old. I live in Greenville, North Carolina, and I am a 21-year licensed veteran cosmetologist, master stylist, and master educator. Tamika, as you know, it's high time for me to take my braids out, but I'm a little bit nervous about letting my natural hair show. And I'm wondering what people like my coworkers might think on these Zoom calls that we have every day when they see instead of these cute pigtails, crochet braids that I might have, I have, you know, some natural hair. And I was wondering, have your clients with protective styles expressed similar worries about showing their natural hair? I immediately began hearing from my customers who wear protective styles. I have quite a few. I began hearing from them immediately because that's always a concern. I don't know what to do with my hair. What am I going to do with my hair if I have to wear my own hair out? Or what is it that I need to do when it comes time for me to take this out? Historically, it has always been of the utmost importance, even if you're just going to the grocery store. I know my my mother and my grandmother used to always tell me, even if you're going to the mailbox, you make sure your hair looks good. Don't go out looking a mess. You care about yourself. You care about what you look, because unfortunately, that's just how we were looked upon. And in some ways, we still are. It is an unfortunate fact that our hair is just not welcome in certain parts of the society. And unfortunately, I have clients who are physicians, who are psychiatrists, who are professors, who work for different parts of the government, or they have very, very elite positions in their field. And because of the way they choose to wear their hair, they, they, they catch a lot of heat and they take a lot of scorn, but that does not take away from how they do their job. But unfortunately, because if they want to keep their job nine times out of 10, they have to keep their hair a certain type of way. And it's kind of like you kind of have to have your feet straddled on both sides of the fence. You want to maintain who you are, but in order to keep your way of living, then you kind of have to play their game too. And unfortunately, politically, it's, it's not fair. The bigger picture, in my opinion, is understanding that your hair does not have to be intimidating. Tamika Phillips spoke with Post Reports producer Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Spernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. 
tomorrow, we're dropping a bonus episode in your feed. It's from our colleague, Mark Fisher, and it's about how toilet paper became our weird way of feeling a sense of control over our lives during this pandemic. So look out for that. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.